First Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, sorry, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Well, as we... Jump back into the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, we begin a section here in chapter 8 that will carry all the way through chapter 10. Uh, really, the first verse of chapter 11. And this section is held together, as we'll see in a moment, by uh, the theme of idolatry and Paul's response to some of the Corinthians' questions about it. Uh, if you remember, the relationship between Paul and the church at Corinth was tense, to say the least. Paul and this church had been trading letters back and forth, Paul giving instruction, uh, the members of the church pushing back at certain points. And part of what Paul is doing in the letter of 1 Corinthians is clarifying some of the points from his earlier letters and responding to some of the Corinthian objections. That, that explains, I think, his abrupt transition at the beginning of chapter 8. So if you remember when we were back in chapter 7, Paul was talking about singleness, marriage, divorce, uh, those kinds of things. And then suddenly in verse 1 of chapter 8, he changes topics and says, now concerning food offered to idols. It seems that Paul has now moved on to another topic that had been part of their earlier correspondence. And it seems from the, the tone of chapters 8 through 10 that this was a matter about which there was no small disagreement Paul and the church were at odds on this issue of food offered to idols. Now here's, the, here, here's what's going on. Corinth was a pagan city, and it was known for its temple worship, particularly uh, the temple to the god or the goddess Aphrodite. And in those days, a large part of the way you would worship a, an idol or a god in an ancient temple was the, the sacrifice of animals and then the subsequent eating of the meat from those sacrifices. 
So it went something like this. An animal would be sacrificed to the god, and then the meat would be divided up into three portions. One part would be burned up before the god. Usually that was the part that, that no one wanted to eat. Uh, another part would be served to the people who were there to worship. They would, they would eat it as their meal. And then one part was placed on what was called the, the god's table. And that would ultimately make its way into the marketplace and be sold uh, at butcher shops or would be eaten by worshipers. And the, the thing is that these temple feasts, the, the eating of meat that was sacrificed to these false gods, it was basically like an ancient world version of a restaurant. So going to eat at the temple was a bit like going to Chili's on Friday night with your wife. If you were going out or if you were celebrating an occasion or if you were having a birthday or something like that, I don't know if they celebrated birthdays like that, but, but you understand, you, you didn't have like a TGI Fridays down the street where you could just go and hang out with your friends. You went to the temple. You ate a meal there. They had sort of semi-private areas where you could host gatherings and, and share a meal where the food that would be served was the, the meat that had been sacrificed to the God. And so the Corinthian church members, remember this church has only been in existence for a few short years. These are adults who grew up in a pagan world. They would have spent their whole lives going as a normal course of sort of social affairs to the temple to eat. It was simply a, a, a part of the fabric of normal life in the city. But now they've become Christians. And as followers of Christ, they obviously can't be involved in worshiping false gods. And, and it seems that after Paul left Corinth, remember he was there for a few years planting the church and establishing it. He left Corinth to go on and minister in another city. And it seems that after he left, some of the members of the church went back to participating in these meals in the temple. They went back to eating the, this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Paul appears to have forbidden the practice uh, in one of his earlier letters to them. And so some of the Corinthians are pushing back on him in their letter in response. So scholars have, uh, have looked at the way Paul responds here in chapter 8 through 10 and uh, identified sort of four points in the Corinthians' counter-argument. So Paul has written to them, it seems, and said, look, don't participate in these feasts. Don't eat the, this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And it seems that the Corinthians, in their letter back to Paul, uh, have sort of raised four objections or counter-arguments. First, they argue that they all have knowledge when it comes to idols. You see that referred to in verse 1 of, of chapter 8. Basically, what this means is that they're arguing, look, we know there's only one true God. These other gods, right, Apollo, Aphrodite, they don't actually exist. And so if I'm armed with that knowledge, what's the harm if I eat meat that's been sacrificed to something that doesn't exist? Right, other people there might be worshiping an idol. I'm just eating with my friends. So what's the big deal? We all have knowledge when it comes to idols. Uh, the second part of their argument seems to be that they have knowledge when it comes to food. You see that referenced in, in verse 8. Uh, that is to say, they seem to have argued that the food that we eat is not a moral or religious issue. That it's a matter of indifference to the Lord. God doesn't tell us to eat one thing or another, and so it doesn't really matter where our meat comes from. It's just not a spiritual question. Uh, the third thing seems that it seems like they had an almost magical approach to the sacraments. That is to say, they thought that because they had participated in baptism, and because they were participating in the Lord's Supper, 
that would protect them from any potential spiritual harm that might come from engaging in a meal in an idol's temple. Uh, Scholars get that notion from the way that Paul warns them in chapter 10. And he points to the example of Israel and he says, look, they they went through a kind of baptism. Uh, They went through a kind of eating and drinking in the Lord and still fell in the wilderness, spiritually speaking. It seems like that's the idea that he's pushing back on, saying just sort of participating in baptism in the Lord's Supper doesn't actually sort of magically protect you from spiritual harm. And then finally, the fourth thing is it seems that some Corinthians questioned whether or not Paul even had the authority to speak to this issue. Remember that this has been a thread all throughout 1 Corinthians, that some of the church members there were were pushing back on whether Paul really had apostolic authority over the church. That, I think, explains Paul's sort of random seeming defense of himself in chapter 9. Chapter 8, he talks about idols and food sacrifice to idols. Chapter 9, he suddenly starts defending his status as an apostle. And then chapter 10, he goes back to talking about food sacrifice to idols. It seems like they were questioning whether they really even had to listen to him. Paul seems to be addressing those four objections in chapter 8 to 10. And in our passage for this morning, Paul's going to address the first two. The idea that idols don't exist and so we're free to eat in the temple. And then the second one, that God doesn't tell us what it is that we should eat. And significantly, what we're going to see is that Paul actually agrees with the Corinthians. They're right on the facts. But what he objects to is their attitude towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's turn to chapter 8 and see what there is for us from Paul's instructions. And I'd like to see three things, particularly in his response here. First, let's see that there is only one God. As I mentioned, the first point in the Corinthian response to Paul was that uh, they all possess knowledge. You see that there in verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, Paul says. If you look down in verse 4, you see the content of this knowledge that we all possess. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. If you're looking there in, the, in your Bible, you see the translators have put those statements, an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one, the translators have put those in quotation marks to show that it seems that Paul is referring to their letter. He's quoting back to them their own letter. I think that's correct. Uh, The point seems to be that that they felt like they're free to eat meat that's been sacrificed in temples because fake gods aren't real. There is only one God. And as far as it goes, Paul absolutely agrees. There in verses 5 and 6, we read this. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul is agreeing with them in their statement that an idol has no real existence. Now, in one sense, idols do obviously exist. The Corinthians could go down to the temple and look at them. They could see the statues of of Apollo or Diana that people could worship. But what Paul is saying here is that even though idols exist, they have no reality 
with respect to the divine power that's been attributed to them. An idol is nothing more than a, a, a carved hunk of rock. If it's a god, it's only a so-called god. We see Paul's agreeing with their statement that there is no god but one. This was a foundational tenet of the Judaism in which Paul had grown up. It was still repeated every day and, and is to this day by observant Jews. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there here in, in verse 6 of, of chapter 8, he points out that this is in fact true. And everyone in the church in Corinth has this knowledge. There is one God, Paul says. Uh, when he speaks of God, he's usually referring to God the Father. And he says there's one Lord. That's usually how Paul refers to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says there is one God and there is one Lord. Now, just to step back for a second, that is extraordinary in and of itself. If you have any doubts about whether the, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is really taught in the Bible, just look there in verse 6. Uh, you'd have to work really hard to miss the significance of what Paul's saying. Here, he's making a point emphasizing monotheism, emphasizing the truth that there is only one God. And in the middle of making that point, he refers to God. That's his typical way of talking about God the Father. And he also refers to the Lord. Again, Paul's typical way of referring to God the Son, the Lord Jesus. And while he doesn't explicitly say that Jesus is God, he's using language that clearly connects God the Father and God the Son while he's making a point about monotheism. Even his use of the word Lord for Jesus is significant. That was the, the way that the, the Greek Bible translated the, the name of God, Yahweh, out of Hebrew. And so when Paul calls Jesus Lord, he's, he's telling us that this is the same God that, that the Old Testament is talking about when it talks about Yahweh. Notice how closely Paul connects the work of Jesus with the work of God the Father. The Father is the one from whom are all things, he says. The Son is the one through whom are all things. There in verse 6, the Father is the one for whom we exist. The Son is the one through whom we exist. There's a lot that we could say about that, but, but we should at the very least acknowledge that Paul seems to see absolutely no tension in talking about the work of the Father and the work of the Son when he's making a point about the oneness of God. And friends, because that is true, we as Christians must insist on the larger point that Paul's making here. And that is, there is only one God. And, and that is the God of the Bible, who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in three persons. So while we ought to show respect to our Muslim and Mormon and Hindu friends, we cannot, in the interest of seeming polite or open-minded or tolerant, we cannot affirm the popular notion that we all serve the same God just in a different form or a different way. If there is only one God, and if that God exists eternally in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then every other God is only, at best, a so-called God. 
Every God that is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not a real God. How could they be? We simply can't agree that all the religions of the world are merely different paths to the top of the same mountain. There is only one God. There is only one path. Now, in terms of what that means for our lives, it means that we need not worry about those false gods. I think that's Paul's conclusion here. Since an idol isn't real, the Corinthians aren't in any real spiritual danger just from eating in the temple. His words here echo the words of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 10, starting in verse 2, we read this. This is the Lord speaking to his people. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There there is no real reason to be concerned about the so-called gods of the world. The only thing you need to do is avoid worshiping them. You don't need to be worried about offending them. They have no power over anything because they don't actually exist. Allah is not the wrong God. He is a non-God. He doesn't exist. You can't get on his bad side. The gods of Hinduism are not real. And so you need not worry about offending them. The only God you need to worry about is the one that is real. The God of the Bible. For whom and through whom all things exist. The Corinthians say we have knowledge that there is only one God. And Paul says that is in fact true. That brings us to the second thing for us to see here this morning, and that is that food doesn't commend us to God. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but Paul does mention it, and so it's worth stopping to notice. If you look there in verse 8, we read this. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now, in the Old Testament, God had given his people some very specific instructions regarding their dietary habits. There were many foods they were not permitted to eat, many restrictions on how they prepared their food. And one of the things that was obviously not permitted was food that had been offered to foreign gods. You see that in Exodus chapter 34, verse 15. But the point was never that certain kinds of food are inherently bad or inherently good. As if fish are okay to God, but pigs are somehow bad. After all, the Lord, we read right here, is the one who made them all, who made everything. Rather, these dietary laws had a a symbolic purpose. They were meant to distinguish Israel from the surrounding nations. And so these dietary laws had been fulfilled and set aside in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so now we understand that God doesn't consider certain kinds of food clean or okay, and others unclean or wrong. So Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, writes this. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected 
if it is received with thanksgiving. Jesus makes this clear in Mark chapter 7 when he says this. He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. That is to say, the food that you eat is not your moral problem. It's not what you eat that makes you morally unclean in God's sight. It's what comes out of you. It's your, it's your words, it's your actions that reveal an unclean heart within you. Jesus is saying that's the real problem. That's what God actually cares about. So we don't worship God by eating certain kinds of food and abstaining from others. Uh, Paul tells us over and over again, we worship God by, by eating with generous, grateful, joyful hearts. Now, that might seem obvious, but there does seem to be a sort of thinking of the wider world that creeps into the church. I don't know if you've noticed, but America is obsessed with food. And Americans are, are carefully discipled to think about food in sort of quasi-religious terms. Right? Certain foods are super. Other foods are junk. Right? We, we talk about food in almost magical terms. Certain foods heal you. Other foods can make you bulletproof, right? And, and Christians, I think, sometimes buy into that way of thinking. It, it seems like there's always fringe movements trying to push a certain diet as if it's some sort of secret knowledge that we as Christians have, right? Or hold out some, some way of maybe feeding your children as the thing that will make them godly and well-behaved, right? Some people talk about uh, eating, as if a, a certain way of eating will make you happy and healthy and keep you sort of in line with God's will and fulfill God's purpose for your life. But here Paul says we're, we're no better off if we eat or don't eat. It's just not something that matters when it comes to our spiritual well-being. We should be very clear, there are no non-Christian foods, right? There are no particularly Christian foods, except Maybe you could say the bread and the wine that we share together at the Lord's Supper. So is there wisdom to be exercised when it comes to the, the food that we eat? Of course, as with most things in life. Gluttony and drunkenness are clearly wrong. Some foods are healthier than others. You may have allergies or medical conditions that mean you shouldn't eat certain things. But the, the point here is that food is not something that commends us to God. It's not something that makes us better or worse in his sight. And it's certainly not something we should force on other Christians or, or cause us to look down on brothers and sisters who make different choices. Okay, with that said, let's move on then to the third and final thing for us to see from this passage. And I think this is the main point. And that is this. Uh, Paul insists here that our conduct must be guided by love. So there is only one God. The Corinthians were arguing that they had that knowledge, and Paul says, you're right. Food will not commend us to God, the Corinthians argued, and Paul says, that also is correct. But here's Paul's real objection to the Corinthians. Our conduct must be guided not by knowledge, but by love. Look there in verses 1 to 3. Paul says, now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, 
He does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Again, the Corinthians are arguing that all of us have knowledge. The content of that knowledge, according to verse 4, is that idols aren't anything. And so here, Paul doesn't disagree with the Corinthian statement, but he just says, I'm not a huge fan of your knowledge and the way that you use it. I'm not a big fan of the way your knowledge affects your brothers and sisters in the church. He, he contrasts their knowledge to the far superior Christian virtue of love. And he tells the Corinthians, you're emphasizing the wrong thing. The goal of all of our learning, after all, is love. Paul contrasts knowledge and love in two ways. He says that he, they have different results Knowledge puffs up the one who has it, but love builds other people up. Now, to be clear, Paul's not opposed to learning or education. He is not anti-intellectual. What he's opposing here is the pride and the arrogance that often comes along with having knowledge. I think we can understand what he's talking about. Right? When we feel like we're right, when we feel like we're the experts, when we feel like we've figured something out that maybe other people don't understand, it can make us proud. It can tempt us to rely on our own wisdom and insight. It can make us feel inflated, like we're better than others who aren't as informed, who haven't figured out the things that we've figured out, who aren't as enlightened as we are. Knowledge has the tendency to puff up, but not so love. Real love never makes you arrogant and proud. Love makes you care about the needs of others. Love makes you care first and foremost about the impact of your actions on them. Love doesn't make us feel very accomplished or clever, but it does serve others and help them and do them good. And so it's love and not knowledge that should be the foundation on which we build our principles of conduct. It's the foundation for our ethics. It's the foundation on which we, we begin to build an answer to the question, should I do this thing or not? As the Corinthians came to the question of food sacrificed to idols, their knowledge was right. Yeah, food actually doesn't matter when it comes to God. It doesn't commend us to him. Yeah, you're right. There is no such thing as an idol. There is only one God. The problem with the Corinthians was not that their knowledge was wrong. It's that you don't build your, your ethics, your, your should I do this or not questions on the foundation of knowledge. You build it on the foundation, Paul's saying, of love. I think there's a couple of different ways that we can be tempted to not believe what Paul's saying here. Or maybe just to disagree with it. We tend to value being correct over being loving. We excuse all kinds of unkindness and vitriol and venom if we agree with the point being made. Right? I would just refer you to the public conversation among American evangelicals on a whole host of, sort of political and social issues lately. In Corinth, the, the preference for knowledge over love manifested itself in an individual's sort of love of their own rights and freedoms instead of the, the welfare of others. So Paul says there in verse 2, if you think you know something, if your identity is rooted in what you know 
and how correct your opinions are when it comes to the matters of the Bible and Christian practice, Paul says that's proof you don't know anything, really. Rather there in verse 3, he says the way of knowledge is the way of love. If you imagine that you know something, you don't actually know anything. But if anyone loves God, he says in verse 3, he is known by God. It's being known by God that matters. It's being loved by him that, that then always ought to result in, in our being loving towards others. Paul says that's real knowledge. Now in Corinth, the kind of love that Paul's looking for is this. A willingness to prefer the well-being of your brother or sister, even if that means you sacrificing your rights. See, the problem is, despite what the Corinthians said, not everyone in the church felt the same way about food sacrificed to idols. Yes, we know that an idol is not a real thing, that there's only one God and that the so-called gods of the world have no actual existence. But look, look at what Paul says in verse 7. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, that is some in the church, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. You see, some in the church had a, a former association with idols. Maybe they were particularly involved in temple worship. Maybe their conscience is just very tender. But they can't conceive of that meat that's been sacrificed to an idol as anything but a sacrifice made to another god. Perhaps they had been exposed to idol worship for so long that they just can't help having their conscience defiled by, by eating this meat. It just, no matter what they say, no matter what they think, it just feels wrong to them. Because they used to eat this meat as part of worship of a false god. And so they just can't do it. They can't go back to that way of, of living. It just seems like the opposite of Christianity to them. And so Paul's saying, if that's how they feel, if that's what's going on in their heart and mind, they shouldn't eat it. Because if they did, it would be doing them great spiritual harm. There in verse 11, Paul says they would be destroyed. That's an important principle that Paul's sort of drawing on here. If you believe that something is wrong, if your conscience tells you that it is, or if your convictions are that the Bible forbids it, then you should not do it. Even if God doesn't in fact forbid it to his people, it would be sin for you. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 14, verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Here he's speaking about food particularly. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. It seems that some in the church were arguing for a vegetarian diet. Others thought it was fine to eat anything. We know the right answer. Paul says there in verse 14, the right answer is you're free to eat anything. Right? No food is unclean. But Paul says if you think it is, stay away from it. Don't do what you believe is wrong. Four times there in verses 9 to 12, he calls this person with the more sensitive conscience, he calls, it, calls them weak, or he calls their conscience weak. He's not being pejorative or unkind, it's simply an accurate description. These people 
can't manage to fully exercise their freedom in Christ. It would simply be too much for them because of their background and experiences. There in verse 9, he says, uh, not to let your right, that is your right to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, don't let it become a stumbling block to the weak. There in verse 10, he explains what he means by a stumbling block. If someone with a tender conscience about idolatry sees you eating in the temple, your example might encourage them to do the same thing. There in verse 11, he says that would destroy them. It would be a grievous sin. And since this brother or sister that you're destroying with your freedom is someone for whom Christ died, there in verse 11, Paul says this is actually a terrible sin against the Lord Jesus. To make someone that he died for stumble is a terrible sin. He says, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. But that's not all there in verse 13. Paul takes us back to the original point about tempering our knowledge and our freedom with love. In verse 13, he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. See, Paul, right, the, the apostle of the heart set free, the apostle of freedom who, who knows perfectly well that you can eat whatever you want and it does not matter. Paul says, I would rather never eat meat. I would rather subvert all of my freedom, all of my privilege, all of my rights to the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I would rather never eat meat again rather than hurt my brother. A bit later on in Romans 14, from the the verse I just read you in, in verse 20, he says this. He says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. See, Paul's point is clear. Knowledge is fine. Knowledge is good. But, but what, we, what we need most when we're making a decision about whether I should do this thing or not is love, is concern for my brother and sister in Christ. So as we conclude, let's put some flesh on this. Let me give you just a couple of thoughts that might help us apply this to our lives. Because your life will present you with a seemingly endless series of decisions that you'll need to think well about. How do you dress? What do you eat? What do you drink? What kind of music do you listen to? What kind of TV do you watch? Right? We could make a, a long list of, of things about which sort of Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians will come to different conclusions. Now, to be clear, when we're, when we're talking about these kinds of ethical questions, we're only talking about things that are morally neutral, things that, in, in the language of verse 8, don't commend us to God. We're talking about gray areas where, where Christians are free to disagree with one another. Right? You can't violate God's clear commands and claim that you have knowledge or freedom in Christ. Right? If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the end of chapter 6 makes that abundantly clear. So if your conscience permits you to commit adultery or get drunk or murder, you need to retune your conscience. Right? The issues at hand in this passage are, are strictly gray areas. But when it comes to these matters, whether we decide to eat or not eat, drink or not drink, watch or not watch, we should first consider whether this action could harm our brother or sister. Is there a chance that your behavior might be seen and misconstrued by someone with a weak conscience? 
Look again at verse 10. Paul says to the church, what if your brother sees you having a meal in the pagan temple and you embolden him to sin against his conscience? We should think carefully about whether or not our behavior might cause our sister or our brother to sin. Paul assumes that two major concerns will motivate us in these situations. First, again, love for our brother or sister. Paul assumes that a Christian will be driven by concern and love for other people, particularly within the church. A Christian will sacrifice his rights in order to protect and preserve his brother and sister's well-being. Again, Paul's going to elaborate more on that in chapter 9. And second, Paul assumes that we should be and, and that we are motivated by love for the Lord Jesus himself. Again, you see that in verses 11 and 12. Your love for your brother or sister is really love for Christ. Because other Christians aren't merely people. They're people for whom the Lord Jesus died. And so sinning against them is in fact sinning against the Lord Jesus himself. You see, Christ takes things done to his people very seriously. Remember in Acts chapter 9, when the apostle Paul, then named Saul, saw the the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus confronts him about his abuse of the church, he says to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right? Saul had never done anything sort of particularly and specifically to Jesus in his earthly life. But Paul had attacked his church. He'd attacked his people. He'd attacked ones for whom Christ died. And so Jesus confronts him and says, why have you done this to me? In Matthew 25, speaking to those who helped and hurt his sheep, the Lord Jesus says, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. See, Jesus so identifies with his people that the harm done to them, even to the very least of them, he says, he understands to be harm done to him personally. When you destroy your weaker brother in the exercise of your rights and freedoms and knowledge, you sin not just against them, but against Christ himself. But when you sacrifice in love for your brother or sister, you're loving the Lord Jesus. Church, I hope you're seeing again and again in 1 Corinthians that your spiritual health is not something that can be considered in isolation. It's something that always gets sort of lived out and played out in the context of the church. It's not enough for you simply to take care of your own business. Instead, you you have an obligation to be concerned about the well-being of others in the congregation. Paul assumes that nothing he says here makes sense if that's not the case. So as we conclude, brothers and sisters, could it be that some of your behaviors, or maybe even some of the ways that you publicize your behaviors on social media, could it be that some of your behaviors might cause others to stumble and sin? Is there anything in your life, anything in the choices that you make that might be harmful to others? Perhaps you have a very robust understanding of your freedom in Christ, like the Apostle Paul did. Maybe you know that certain behaviors are not inherently sinful, even if they might make some Christians nervous. Do you temper that knowledge with love? 
Or are you simply irritated by weaker brothers who can't get on the same page with you? How would your behavior be seen by young believers or, or weaker believers? Could it be that anyone might be led to sin by your example? And if so, do you love enough to change? Brothers and sisters, Christ did not assert his rights. He did not assert his freedom at our expense, but he willingly put aside everything, his glory and his freedom and his rights to be mistreated for our sake. Can't you do even a fraction of the same for the sake of the least of your brothers? To demand your rights is nothing less than self-worship. It's to say that your needs and your desires are the most important, most central thing in the universe. One author puts it this way. He says, insisting on one's rights, even insisting on one's rights as a Christian, is a sign that something other than the true God is being worshipped. So brothers and sisters, let's commit to subordinating our rights, our knowledge, our freedom to God. He's the one who gave them to us in the first place. Let's willingly give them up for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And friend, if you find yourself in the situation where you are the weaker brother or sister, can I just encourage you not to be content to stay there and sort of make other people cater to you? It's presumably not ideal to be weak. Paul does call it a lack of knowledge here. So you actually can labor to educate your conscience. You can seek to better understand and internalize the freedom that we have in Christ. It may never be wise for you to do certain things because you know that for you it would be sin, but, but maybe you could educate your conscience to understand how others who, who feel their freedom in Christ are able to eat and drink and watch and wear and listen to things that you can't without violating the command of the Lord. Work to increase your knowledge and understanding out of love for your stronger brothers and sisters. Expose yourself to good teaching. Read the Bible. Read good books. Get to know other believers who can help you with your weakness. You don't have to stay where you are. You can educate your conscience. But I'm struck by the fact that Paul keeps beating this drum over and over in his letter to this church. It's something that they obviously needed to hear, and I think it's something, frankly, we need to hear as well. It seems that Paul is constantly calling the church to reimagine their identity in light of the truth of the gospel. Right, we saw this back in chapter 6, where Paul is astonished that church members are suing one another. And he asks them, isn't it better to be wronged, to be defrauded, than, than to disgrace the gospel and hurt your brothers and sisters? Right here, he's calling out members of the church who are insisting on their rights to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, even though it's hurting other people. And so, brothers and sisters, as we conclude, just ask yourself, is that the way you view others in the church? Is this the, the sort of default posture of your heart? Has the gospel soaked so deeply into the soil of your heart that this is what grows up naturally? That you see the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters as far more important than your preferences or rights? If not, you're really failing to take seriously the implications that the gospel has for our life together as a church.
You're failing to take seriously the the self-giving love of the Lord Jesus, who didn't insist on his rights, but freely gave himself up for us when we were weak and spiritually helpless. Remember, the gospel gets lived out in a church context. When I grasp the love that I've received, despite my weakness, despite my sin, and I see others for whom Christ died, then love always moves me forward and compels me to loving sacrifice. I would never assert my rights at the expense of my brother or sister. And one of the ways that we live that out, one of the ways that we affirm our ongoing trust in the gospel and our ongoing love for one another in the church is through the Lord's Supper. It's here that we come together to eat and drink for the edification of our brothers and sisters, proclaiming the death of Christ until he returns. It's here that we reaffirm our covenant to one another, our commitment to one another as a church family, to love one another and to look out for one another's spiritual well-being. And so let's pray, and then let's come to the table together. Let's pray. Our God, we love you and we rejoice in all that you've done for us. We praise you for the Lord Jesus and his self-emptying, self-giving love. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make us a people who are shaped and formed by the gospel message. We pray that our hearts would be Um, shaped and formed by love. We pray that our knowledge would always be tempered with love. We pray that our freedom would always be tempered with love. We pray that you'd help us to be wise in the way that we love one another. We pray that you would give us great concern and care for each other in the church uh, so that we might build one another up rather than tear one another down. And we ask all these things for the glory of Christ in his name. Amen.